and now I, I come out in entrepreneurship with more of a like patience um, and like 1% improvements every day add up over time rather than trying to only grow, only scale. And I don't think that's a healthy mindset for entrepreneurship and even for VCs to have and try to force onto their founders. So that's kind of like one takeaway uh, about failure entrepreneurially is that you have to be very set in your own mindset and focused on like continual iterative improvement rather than like overnight success and like 10x hype in, in a single year. So it's kind of like learning how to be reasonable, learning how to be balanced, learning how to be stable. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's show, we have Jefferson Sanchez, COO and co-founder at Renovate. In this episode, we talk about revenue acceleration for house remodelers, web-free, artificial intelligence, and platform revolution in construction. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you enjoyed, please leave us a review. This helps us get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. Before we dive in, shout out to our sponsor, Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, investors, and advisors, check them out by visiting www.d-beta.com. And this is www.the-beta.com. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes Podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Jefferson, so we are excited to have you today. Can you give us a quick overview of how you got to creating Revonate? Yeah, I'd love to. I guess I'll start with a a short quote that I kind of live my life by uh, that's relevant to this is, you can't always connect the dots of what you're going to do looking forward. It only makes sense when you look backwards. Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve Jobs, right. And you kind of just got to trust something that it's always going to work out. And for me, I'm a first-generation immigrant to the U.S. from Nicaragua. What that actually meant practically was that I grew up in construction. And if anyone else is from Miami or first-generation immigrant, and your parents or your uncles or yourself actually grew up in construction, that's something I did myself. So post-hurricanes replacing roofs or just tiling because one of my uncles had, had a tile job. It didn't really make sense until now, which is uh, building a construction tech company. And in between, there was a journey to MIT, a journey to University of Michigan. I worked for General Motors for a while doing energy systems modeling for, for, for their operations. Uh, I worked for one of the largest EPC firms in the world, Tecnicas Reunidas in Spain, building out one of the world's largest uh, renewable energy power plants. And so it was like this gap between I grew up in construction because I was first generation immigrant and that's just what you did mm-hmm. to now I run a construction tech company. And in between, I learned the tech and I learned a little bit more about the construction. Cool. Very good. Just briefly on, the, on that, do you think that being a migrant, it, does it give you a certain edge comparing to like native people living in the country? Yeah, I think being a first generation immigrant by default makes you hungry. If you weren't in this new country trying to make shit happen from, from nothing, you would end up with nothing. It's this uh, paradox of like, if you have a lot, you forget what it takes to build something from scratch. And if you have nothing, you're just so hungry to just build something that you're not afraid to lose anything because you already don't come from anything. So you're willing to go 10x the risk that everyone else would normally 
sanely do just to be successful. So it's more of a mindset. And, and part of that mindset is like grit, like positivity, optimism, and willing to fail because you have nothing to lose. And it's like, if you don't have that mindset, then you're not going to succeed. And I think that translates very well uh, to startups because at its core, it's always about grit. It's always about positivity. It's always about learning how to get punched in the face, cry, and then wake back up and be really fucking excited to do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can 100% resonate. Uh, also being migrant to the UK. <laughs> with... <laughs> yeah, I guess what I also say is like also has amazing parallels to the construction industry because typically construction is built by immigrants or non-native individuals that are the ones that are typically doing the work. And so in the UK, I've seen builders that are from like uh, Poland, from India, from Northern Africa. And it's like you have Eastern Europe plus Northern African as like this demographic of the quote builders in markets in like the UK. And then you look at the US, you have folks like uh, Asian American immigrants or Mexican American immigrants that are the ones that are actually the builders or the, you know, the ones doing the work. And it's always a story of struggle and grit of like, I'm using my hands to figure out how I can make money and do this thing, which is tough, but it makes sense. Okay, so we touched on this a little earlier when we chatted off camera. So you co-founded a company called Refresh Construction, which used the technology to enhance home renovation process. So unfortunately, the business didn't end up too well. But the failure is obviously the key part of growing and learning as an entrepreneur. Uh, what key lessons did you take from this venture? And how are you applying these to your current ventures? Well, again, for many failure, it's always about figuring out what worked and what didn't work. What can I do more of? What can I do less of? And I think there's two buckets of any kind of learning. It's like there's the personal growth and then there's the business growth. And one of the things about failure is like, why did I fail personally? What was limiting myself and my mindset? And so there was one big bucket of takeaways there, which was like, I needed to focus on my mental health. I needed to have like a better personal routine. And these are the things that you don't typically hear on like other podcasts or like entrepreneurial uh, guidebooks is like, dude, cut the shit. You're not going to go fucking clubbing. Like, don't think you're going to both hustle and grind and be successful and be healthy. You have to pick out a handful of things that you can do well. And it's like sleep, get some good quality food, have a good way to like actually reset because entrepreneurship is a, is a marathon, not a sprint. And so one of the key learnings was like, I burnt myself out over two years of hustling to the point where I had to like reset and get my mind ready for round round two. And now I, I come out entrepreneurship with more of a like patience um, and like 1% improvements every day add up over time rather than trying to only grow, only scale. And I don't think that's a healthy mindset for entrepreneurship and even for VCs to have and try to force onto, uh, onto their, their founders. So that's kind of like one takeaway uh, about failure entrepreneurially is that you have to be very set in your own mindset and focused on like continual iterative improvement rather than like overnight success and like 10x hype in, in a single year. So it's kind of like learning how to be reasonable, learn, learning how to be balanced, learning how to be stable. And then from a business perspective, I merged with the newfound appreciation for bootstrap businesses mm -hmm. and like scrappiness. And so it, it goes counterintuitive against like this VC nature of like, you have to grow fast, you have to scale fast. It's like, I think in the early stages, you want to optimize for things such as revenue and having a really good fundamental business operating system. And once you have a little bit of revenue and a good operating system, then you can start thinking about 2Xing and then 5Xing and 10Xing. And so from, from entrepreneurship for like the round two, it's like, I'd rather be a patient gardener while the systems get into place 
than trying to be overly optimistic and, and scale to it. And so those were kind of like the key lessons or, or takeaways. It's just like personal patience, but also like business patience. Mm-hmm. And that's really what gets you compounding levels of success uh, slowly. But you look back a year or two later and you're like, wow, I have 5x my revenue by just trying to focus on 1% improvements every day in the business. Mm-hmm. What integrations the one that I need to do next? How do I amplify my time even by 20 minutes or 30 minutes in a particular day? Because you do that consistently every day for several weeks, for several months. And you, you look back a year later and you're like, wow, I, I've grown a successful business. So those are my takeaways from <laughs> yeah, sounds good. I think the person who really believes in this is uh, Owen, actually, who is a little bit sick today about his persistence and being super strict about uh, the habits and how they approach the, the work. And also in terms of the second takeaway in business, uh, I think construction is very complicated and it's very, very difficult to like uh, from scratch to get 5, 10x increase in like customers based on or revenue so it has to go slow by its nature unfortunately until it's more automated okay so speaking of automation how about if you tell us about revonate what does it do when was it founded and what problems does it solve so revonate's a revenue acceleration platform for contractors Specifically, that means like sales, marketing, and customer service rolled up into one technology offering that any business that wants to grow can partner and plug. Practically speaking, there's kind of like two pillars. There's revenue growth, and then there's revenue operation. And so when you break it down in revenue growth and revenue operations, it's like, how can I increase top of the funnel leads for my business? How can I increase conversion rates? How can I decrease the time to close as a construction business? How do I improve my brand? and like the ability to be found online, generate trust, et cetera. And then on the revenue operation side, it's how do I quote quickly? How do I know that estimates that I'm sending out are helping qualified clients, but are also aligned with the, the business fundamentals? How am I tracking job costs? How am I setting goals for this project to make sure that they're successful? And so these are kind of these two core pillars of revenue growth and revenue operations that we try to roll into a single platform for GCs to partner with us and hopefully scale together. Okay. Uh, So a few days ago on LinkedIn, I saw your tweet about first AI-powered construction contract. Can you tell a little bit more about this? Yeah. As people who are probably listening to the podcast know, uh, OpenAI released their beta, uh, I think, close to two or three weeks ago. So they were opening it up for multiple people to use. I'm sure there are going to be, it's going to be similar to like Web3 and crypto, where a lot of people are excited around it. But I try to approach it from a different perspective of like, technology is just a product or a feature that helps you do one thing. For our case, it's like helping us close deals and make more money for our GCs. So I try to be really practical in in the way that I showed the example, like how can you use OpenAI, not to like write a blog post or not to just say, hey, this tweet or this this LinkedIn post was generated by OpenAI. I was like, no, take take technology and, and bring it back down to the real world and bring it into an operating system that makes money. And so the the way that I tried to apply it was how do you use text-based AI and image-based AI to help a contractor close a deal? And so if you break that down into its components, it's one of the first big ones is how do you generate trust with the client and saying, this contractor understands what I'm trying to do and is giving me a price for what I want. And so in this case, it was pretty, it was a little bit easier to feed it into Dolly because it was just exchanging a window and putting an exterior door. But even then, it's, it was complex, like, okay, 
if I needed to render a new house and show a new door with a new landing pad and a roof overhang, do I have a designer that I'm going to partner with? How do I even like, where do I even start as like a normal GC to mm. actually show that rendering? And it was pretty easy to just say, here's this image of a window on the side of this exterior and say, replace it with an exterior door at 36 by 80 inches with a landing pad and a small overhang, which is the scope of work that a GC would know. Right. So it's very easy. Like, mm -hmm. Here's a scope of work. Here's an image. And so state A goes to state B. Make sure that state B is aligned with what you're saying, customer, and I'll give you a price. And so try to be very mm -hmm. practical about just saying state A to state B with an image and a price. And we did that. We sent it to our client. We uh, connected Dolly's um, collections to HubSpot, which is our current CRM that we use to finish stuff in-house, tied it to PandaDoc, which is the contract generation software. And so a customer was able to get a actionable contract for replacing their window with an exterior door, landing pad, and a, a roof overhang with a rendering and a price that was accurate. And that was fairly easy to do. Um, things that would take a GC, they probably seem unfathomable uh, to the GC, which I showed it to our, the contractor partner that we were working on. He was like amazed. He's like, holy shit, like, what the hell? Like, how'd you do this? Mm -hmm. And it was like simple. It was like, you, you just take a picture, you generally tell it an accurate scope of work and you can have some iterations on it to, to make sure it's yeah. actually showable to the client and, and then go on from there. These little bits are revolutionary, but in, in very practical ways. You're not trying to say everything is AI generated contracts for my entire business. It's mm -hmm. like, no, just try it out once. Is it practical? Does it add value? Did it move the contract process a little bit faster? And if it did, great. How do we do it better next time? Mm -hmm. Small steps first. Okay. I actually love what you said. So, I would like to get your like high level take on machine learning and AI, you know, what sort of impact it might have in the future of construction. Because for example, the way I see it in the next 10, 15 years, for example, maybe sooner or later, I don't know, is uh, AI is like uh, having a B2C role. So basically AI generates the designs, fully compliant designs when the customer is operating it and speaking to it in the real time and it can tweak the designs in the real time, obviously on the 3D model. And it does not require that much of the professional touch of an architect or engineer, obviously for a smaller projects. What's your high level view on machine learning and AI and the future of construction? Well, I guess I would start with none of that is going to matter if general contracting businesses do not become digitized. So it's like you can have machine learning and AI as like a tool set, but the first the biggest step and like the biggest barrier that's actually using these tools across all of construction is digitization. Mm -hmm. And it's this culture of like, I'm doing it my old way. I've never had, maybe I still do handshake contracts. So it's like, if you get over the culture and say like, eventually construction will be digitized, there's, you're going to have to be digitized to use all of these other new technologies. Then we can start speaking on like the practical applications of, of ML and AI. And so Let's say we've, we've gotten over that. A, a, an SMB GC or a large GC somehow has the, the underlying database structure so that these models can actually query data, build some insights, and iterate over time. You can bucket into uh, different levels. The first level is like general knowledge, like AI or ML models that apply to everything. And I don't think that's going to be as relevant for, for construction. I think it's hyper-local or... or, or AI and, and machine learning models that are targeted to your company or to your subset of the business. So it'd be more practical to say, here's a, a generative tech model that 
has evaluated just flooring prices in like this one geo. And like, here's this data set of just flooring installation. And it's really accurate for these five to 10 or 20 zip codes. That is just much more actionable and practical so that a GC can come in and say, I now trust that the data that this model has is going to conserve my margins, understand the way that I do business, rather than just trying to have a very generic like AI model that I still need to come back in and verify because I can't trust it. Hmm. Maybe the biggest thing is trust and making sure that ML and AI are trusted because trust is reducing risk in construction. If there's already so much risk, I can't trust that these models are going to adequately mitigate the risk that I need to actually sign this contract and do this job. So I think, you know, ML and AI is only going to take off once we start focusing on generating like hyper-local models specific to just some businesses or even local trades in particular geos. It's, uh, you know, h- how about feeding it like the old cost books, the, the paperback books that were in, in thousand pages and just parsing that data into just like more localized data sets that are, that are actual. And I think that's where things will start taking off, getting some adoption. Okay, so how do we deal with the trust then layer of the problem that you described? Is it this blockchain technologies are helping or this is dealt with the trust problem some, in some other way? Blockchain is useful as a technology to verify that trust for contracts. And so if I had to conceptually kind of tie these two th- things together, I'll go back to a, a like on the ground analogy. If I'm a general contractor, I'm not going to trust you as my sub until I've seen your job shaking your hand, completed it, and got a great review from my customer. Mm -hmm. How do you tie that back into technology? I'm not going to trust an ML or AI-generated contract until I can actually see a scope of work that a client agrees on, that I make money on, that my sub agrees on, that my sub executes, that then the customer gives me a good review on. Until that happens, I won't trust it. So you have to think about the end-to-end life cycle of what does the technology empower what does the physical experience look like? And then come back full circle to give a stamp of trust. So then that's where you can start like uh, layering like, like blockchain and, and uh, trustless technologies. Like, okay, I did this transaction once end to end. Here's what, how it happened. It's logged, has the ledger. It's verifiable, but it's verifiable by the human from the end to end bit. But then you have 10 experiences or 100 experiences. And now you can start letting the machine learning look back and, and find the data and find the patterns that actually make it verifiable or let me trust it so then it can be on the blockchain so that it is trustless and replica easy to replicate in, in other instances and other use cases so i don't know it's a long way to say that it's it's still going to be based off of like doing work in the field that is verified by a human to then scale okay so maybe let's move on to archidao so you are a council member of archidao can you explain what archidao is yeah archidao is essentially the world's first DAO by architects uh, for architects. And if anyone is trying to figure out or trying to get plugged in to some of the world's leading thinkers in blockchain, in construction, in architecture, and in design, it's arguably the best community that you can find out there, both in person and online. And so at the core of like Arkadell's like mission or is using technology and trying to implement it into architecture and construction. So part of that is clearly the blockchain by its name, Archidao. And then there's a lot of cool technologies about how you have blockchain-powered contracts, blockchain-powered crypto twins, and architectural models that 
align with generative design and allow you to like speak something into existence to get floor plans that are actionable. Mm. I mean, do all of these require blockchain to be involved? It's like sometimes I've, I can hear examples of businesses that use blockchain or trying to reinvent something like a LinkedIn on blockchain or Reddit on blockchain, which to me doesn't make any sense. So yeah, the question is, does, do people use just the hype of blockchain or crypto world rather than just use cases that are real and working? Yeah, so I think there's, and worlds can have paradoxes, right? So the hype and, and, and like the cool factor helps people say, oh, wow, this new technology, I want to learn. And so in any way, it's always good to like leverage the hype to get interest and then turn that interest into something actionable, mm-hmm. right? On the actionable side, blockchain, I think 100% has applications for this industry. I'll say that with the caveat, though, it's not within this year and it's, it's more within like a five to 10 year time. Frame. Mm-hmm. But I'll paint you a picture or try to say a story in which I think blockchain could be relevant and how it ties architecture and construction with like with new technology. Let's say I wanted to build a, a new building on Mars. And let's say I was partnering with like Icon and 3D building printing technologies. And I wanted to have a decentralized distributed architectural design competition in order to build the best possible iteration of a building on the moon. How would I be able to ensure trust and like a standard ledger of like the design? That's where blockchain actually would help come in and build the infrastructure for it. So if I'm a designer, I have my own token that says I've been able to solve these design problems. And if I just solve the design problem that was the successful solution that was implemented for building this this building in Mars or on the moon, then I'd get a little checkbox like, oh, this designer actually submitted a solution that was approved. And then they start generating trust online and they can actually capture a little bit of that value that they created Mm. because that design challenge was attributed to them as an individual. And then separately, how do we know that multiple individuals can then collaborate on the same design in distributed ways? You need to have one model that is trusted. So it needs to say like, this is the core block on which you are building because everyone submitted their designs. These were the ones that were accepted and it generated the new block of trusted information on which everyone else can build on. The blockchain application is trying to verify that there's a single model that is the one model that has all the the most verifiable up-to-date information. So let's say you have block A includes all the model with all the design challenges that have been approved for block A. You issue a new design challenge. Block B now then needs to resolve like all these designers now submit their possible design solutions and that block needs to accept that solution. Now it is the verifiable block B on which new designers can then collaborate to build. And so you can't really do that without having a trustable, verifiable source of truth for this design model. Um, and there's some practical ways in which you can do that right now, like leverage Speckle to integrate different type of 3D files into one core file. And then as everyone submits updates, that update is verified, put on the block, and it includes the file that is downloadable for the new designers to start working on. And if a designer submits their, their design solution, they're logging in with a token that says, hi, I'm designer with blockchain address XYZ. Here's my design. It is approved. Now it is added to the block. And then I get that little bit of reputation and the whole process moves forward. And then the space station on the moon can accept, hey, I got this new submission of this verified block. 
let me put it into the queue to actually 3D print it because this is the best solution mm. as determined by the system, right? Now you have like multiple designers working on planet Earth to send like blockchain verify files to the moon to get 3D printed. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a future <laughs> for us. Not there yet. Okay, let me ask a few more questions about uh, Revonate, maybe more general questions. So how did the journey start? Did you get any outside investments to start the business or to at some point during the creation of the business? So the business had uh, an early stage investment from angels. Uh, it's called Pre-Seed. So we had friends and family and angel investors uh, in the existing space, in contact space. That was not the journey that I was a part of taking Uh, taking on from the beginning. So it's like I came on as a as a co-founder in the later stages of revenue. So my early co-founders, they raised a little bit of angel capital uh, to start powering the business. And then through some some networking, we actually realized that we were aligned mm-hmm. and started building together on revenue. So when I came in, the company had a little bit of capital. And since then, we've been focusing on actually generating our own capital from closing deals and hopefully bootstrapping for a bit until we go back out to the market to to raise a formal round of fundraising. Would you say there are pros and cons of uh, taking the outside investments or is it better to bootstrap like you did with the, your first venture? Given the current economic conditions, I say bootstrapping is an actual attractive way to start a business uh, in today's market. So focus on getting to 25K in monthly or 50K in monthly and then have the optionality to go to the venture market and say, Look, we have a verifiable operations and a scalable business process. We can take your 100K investment and turn it into 1 million in like a year. The opposite is that you're telling a really good story, probably based on some you know fundamentals that someone can align on and agree on joining your vision and the story. And then they will give you money, but then you're forced to go build product uh, and try to execute on that while still being very far away from generating capital. So raising capital, I think it's still a good way to, to build a business. But I'd say you want to have inklings that there is a business model already there that you can scale. So if you're taking on venture capital without actually having a viable business model, it puts you in a catch-22 where you're trying to acceleratedly grow nothing. And that's a very big paradox. It's like, how can I take your venture capital and, and give you an exponential return when I actually haven't? generated a single dollar. It's, it's kind of all ideas and it's all stored. The opposite way is bootstrapping, scaling little by little by little, getting the proof points and the traction that you need to then go to venture capitalists and say, $1 in means $10 out. Great. I'm down. Here's the story. Here's how we're getting there. Here's how we're using your money to 10x. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. Okay. So speaking about money and investments or economy. So how do you see construction and innovating within the construction tech with this gloomy landscape of rising interest rates and not great economical environment? I think all all construction businesses are going to get squeezed on margin. So you need to figure out ways to innovate, uh, to either increase your top line or to decrease your operating expenses in some way. And so if if you're a business, you need to move to digitizing your expenses and your income to see You know, it's, it's really fundamentally two things. Like, how can I decrease my expenses? And so once you have your line items in your QuickBooks, you can say, well, I can either cut cost, I can get more efficient, I can increase new tech to you know, do one of those two. Or you look at your top line, like revenue metrics, like how can I increase line item A, B, C, or D? Do I need to focus on bathrooms or kitchens? Do I need to focus on drywall or paint? And so I think with the economy just getting harder to build a business in, 
you need to be more scrappy and, and very targeted in like, how do I increase my top line or uh, reduce my operating expenses? And as I think as a, as a close third is, is shoring up your business for the next three to six months. So if I were a general contractor for I'm a construction company, and I'm a business operator, I'm looking at increasing top line, reducing my expenses and getting a backlog ASAP. Um, those are really the only three things that you can focus on. And if you're not, then you're going to be caught in this gloomy doominess of like, is the market going to fail? Is my company going to fail? What am I going to do? And fundamentally, you can only do those three things. Make more sales, reduce your expenses, and get yourself a backlog. So I think that's what companies are going to do is like try to close more deals, reduce their operating expenses by innovating in some way or reducing cost of you know, like the, the people or their processes and look to get a backlog. I'd rather close my funnel and see like who, who is in my funnel already. How can I close them and make sure that they're on board for the next three to six months to give me the breathing room to survive those six months to a year or longer? Okay, sounds good. Yeah, so like uh, in my business a few months ago, we were increasing our fees uh, and sounds like we might be coming back to the, <laughs> to the past sooner or later. So Revonate, is it designed for US construction market or not necessarily? Not necessarily. It's designed for any business that wants to grow and scale and is willing to digitize uh, some aspect of their operations. So we can technically work in, uh, in any geo. But we're also staying very practical today and, and focusing on the U.S. market. That's where myself and my co-founder have the most experience. But also there's a, there's a potential recruit or potential partner already in, in our funnel from London, actually. We have global ambitions, but we're also practical in that we're uh, starting to scale around the market that we know of. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the last one before we go to off-topic questions. So can you give us some marketing tactics that construction companies can implement while growing the business? So the, from the discussions with Owen earlier, I know that you have some good ones based on, based on the discussions with him. Yeah, I'll almost use the example that we, that we were talking through before this, Owen, uh, as one very actual uh, tactic that also leverages new technology. So I'll tie this into how you can use OpenAI or Jasper or any of these other cool AI cooperating technologies to actually help you generate more deals. So if I were a construction business, I would ask myself, what is my core competency? Um, and in that example, let's say I was a drywall company in Miami. Great. So I know I'm, I want to look for business and help find customers that are doing drywall business. We're looking for drywall contractors in Miami. I'd go to SEMrush or some other marketing tool and say, what are people looking for when they're looking to hire someone to do drywall in Miami? Look at the top 10 posts. Take those top 10 posts with like a headline, a, a tagline for the blog. Take those two things, go into OpenAI. Now, say, hey, OpenAI, write me 10 blog posts that use looking for drywallers in Miami to remodel my home. Have it actually write your 10 blog posts. Then go to something like a, a CMS like Buffer or WordPress or Wix and copy and paste. And all of a sudden, you save yourself $5,000 of a copywriter you know, that roughly pay, pay for one or two months to write you 10 to 15 blog posts. So that's one way I, I think you know, tactically you, you can actually use new technology uh, to hack your way to generating some, some marketing. Okay, uh, let's move to off-topic questions. So I wanted to touch on knowing where you're based, which is Nicaragua at this moment, how about what's your take on work-life balance and working within the tech construction business remotely? Yeah, work-life balance, yeah, it's honestly really, really tough. And work-life balance is going to be tough no matter whether you're based stateside, whether you're based in Europe and 
like some hustling, bustling economy, you always have to have trade-offs. The trade-off that I make is that I'm in my office eight to 10 hours a day. And then after that, I try and check out and I either go to the gym, have dinner with my girlfriend. I look at some way of actually being active. But the work-life balance of being a remote worker is that you're going to be working eight to 10 hours. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You just need to accept that if you're an entrepreneur trying to build a serious business, you need to be logging every day, five, six, seven times a week and putting in eight to 10 hours. Maybe on a Saturday or Sunday, you put you know four focused hours. But the core of it is you're still going to be on your computer, talking to clients, managing product, managing tech. And so this, this idea of a, of a remote worker taking their laptop, putting it on their, on their beach chair and like snapping a picture on IG, like hashtag remote work Bali, that's not real. And those aren't real tech entrepreneurs. Those are likely lifestyle businesses that have been very successful and are trying to have you buy into their hype. Mm. Well, let's be just totally practical that being a nomadic tech entrepreneur means you are still every day putting in eight to 10 hours every single day. The highlight that you do get, though, is that when you check out of work, you can walk to a cafe in Medellin. You can go for coffee in King's Cross somewhere. You know, you can go have a day in, in Central Park. But the reality is of it is, is you're still grinding eight to 10 hours a day and you need to have your laptop and your keyboard, mouse and like mm-hmm. multi-screen setup. Just the highlight of it is that when you do take your coffee breaks, when you do try to have dinner with friends, when you do network with folks, it's going to be with entrepreneurs and business builders in just different locations. And I think that's the highlight of, of it is like, am I networking with mm-hmm. builders and entrepreneurs in other in other locations? That's the biggest highlight because it's, you know, SF was known for for that. It was like you can go out of your eight to ten day to, to eight to ten hour grind, go have a coffee and like think about mind-blowing ideas. So go find those places around the world where they still have entrepreneurs and builders. Uh, Medellin is is one of those uh, growing, hustling, bustling right uh, tech uh, hubs. They have mm-hmm. like companies like Rappi or even in construction tech, like La House. La House is, is big in Latin America. And so if you're a nomadic entrepreneur, just go where people are building um, and make sure you're going to be plugged in for eight to 10 hours a day. Yeah, I completely agree. And I like what you said about uh, uh, that talking with builders or other professionals within the industry when you are away during these trips, because I found like traveling this year quite a lot in the Middle East a few times and uh, to Asia a few times also, I found that talking to people in the industry is very, very refreshing. Although I can't do as much as I could do in terms of work if I was home, but the insights are absolutely mind-blowing and it's kind of, it gives you like different edge to the insights. So that's that's very interesting. 100%. Okay, Jefferson, can you give us a book or two that you like to read or something maybe about business from business books? One that, that I think particularly stood out to me was a book I think we're in 2019, 2020. It was called The Platform Revolution. And just looking at how all mm. businesses or some of the major business models that have been successful have all been platformed from like Google to Shopify to even some of the emerging uh, contact uh, platforms like House. It's, it's, it's all about a platform and how that's the next business model. Um, so that's one. And I was really, mm-hmm. really influenced by that. And I take a lot of that thinking into how I build my company today. And then I'd also start one on just like psychology and the psychology of entrepreneurship. And it's grit by uh, Carol Dweck, I believe. Um, and just stories of what it means to be gritty and what it means to be stubbornly optimistic and how you can learn from failures, uh, continue to improve. And so if you're an entrepreneur, 
you got to learn about platforms and how those business models work. Uh, and you got to learn about how to have a positive mindset and, and always constantly stay busy. Okay. Thanks, Jefferson. A pleasure talking to you. So for our listeners, when people can find out more about you and uh, what your business does? Yeah. Best way to be to be in touch would be uh, follow me on LinkedIn. So uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'll be trying to post pretty actively about all things contact and how to leverage new technologies for increasing revenue. Or check out Revenue.co. Uh, we're a revenue acceleration platform for contractors. So R-E-V-O-N-A-T-E dot co. Okay. Thank you very much, Jefferson. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.